James. Hey, Duncan. How are you, dude? I'm good, thank you. Happy public holiday down in Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not tired, and I'm not a bit hungover, and I'm going to have good energy. I'm not going to be in autopilot mode, yeah. <laughs> All right, so Duncan, um, I've got an interesting, uh, I've got a favorite quote for you when it comes to the brain. So tell me if you've heard this from uh, Professor and Neuroscientist Moran Scherf. So he points out that uh, why trying to master brain is a bit of a catch-22. And he said, if the human brain were so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't. Hmm. <laughs> <I>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, that, that, that's Duncan's simple brain trying to clock in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Most of the uh, all right, um, Classrooms is a podcast where James and I talk about something. Today we're talking about the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, and specifically a sort of phenomenon called automaticity. Um, I'll put that word in there, um, automaticity. Um, don't okay, don't so, try and get me to pronounce that, please. <laughs> what is it? Basically, there are things which your subconscious can do, which you don't need any knowledge of. And some of those things are programmed into you before you were born. So for instance, in your biology is vertigo. In your biology is get horny. Um, also, um, the great story about um, the rats where they um, got, I think it was raspberry, and then they electrocuted them. Um, so they were classical conditioning or Pavlovian you know, conditioning. Uh, and then two generations later, their children or grandchildren smelled raspberries and they freaked out again. So they had known that this is bad and raspberries don't eat raspberries or something bad's going to happen, right? Mm. And so this means that you could pass stuff through your biology, which you need to, um, to be able to live. So that's like a, a way for humanity to survive is to avoid bad things. So mm. trauma that like gets built into your biology. So there is some automaticity that's in your biology. And then there's some automaticity that's programmed into you after. Some can be programmed in by society. So for instance, in the West, we normally think of people that have personalities that need to be uncovered. And people think of that in this much more fixed mindset. And in the East, much more that your, your personality is forged, right? And so people in the East have a much more growth mindset on average. Um, you can also do stuff for yourself. So for instance, you might not have been able to ride a bike and then you, you, know, you first get on, you can't do it all. And then you get to the point where you can ride it and you don't even think. So it's automatically sitting in your subconscious. And if you ride a bike to and from work or you drive a car to and from work, you can sometimes get there and you haven't thought at all, like all the turns and everything. So it's full automaticity. So this concept is super important because what people say is that 90% of our decisions or more are made up from things out of the subconscious mind, which are in there whether they're in your biology or whether they're put in there by society or whether they're put in there by you. And this is crucial because when you don't, if you don't know this, and I didn't know this for so long, I just thought I was a, you know, had hundred percent agency and was never affected by anybody. <laughs> um, and you know, it, it, you know, if you look at all these things, like, Oh my God, um, 90% It's like, yeah. Okay, James, do you have any questions or thoughts about that one? Well, so this is all very interesting. First, it explains why um, my daughter could ride a bike when she first came out of the womb. So that's really... <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, so automaticity, so from what I understand, is talking about uh, things that we uh, have programmed in us, but not necessarily from a um, an unconscious standpoint, but from a hereditary or even evolutionary standpoint. So, as you pointed out, it's both they they could yeah. they could test for this by you know programming uh, mice in the lab with with raspberries, and several generations later they get a similar response. Um, and so, really interesting how it makes me think about things differently. Because for myself, whenever I think about you know uh, evolution and you know survival of the fittest species, I always thought of it from a purely physiological standpoint. Right. So you might have heard of things like the um, I think it was a Ulysses butterfly who um, evolved to have a certain color because the, the landscape changed. And so they were the only ones who survived because all the other ones got eaten. But what we're uh, exploring here is that there are, well, if I understand it correctly, there are also psychological uh, evolutionary traits that can be passed down from different generations and how that can actually lend itself to, um, you know, being born with certain programmings in us. Like I think, you know, for example, just being able to, to find the breast and being able to have its first feed when a baby comes into the world. That's something it yeah. instinctively knows how to do. Uh, so this is really, really interesting concept. So yeah, really keen to explore this further. Yeah, so that one is a great one. You can put a baby that's just been born on a mum's stomach 
and it will navigate its way to the breast of the nipple and start feeding. Right? And there's many videos of this if you haven't seen it. Which is pretty no incredible when you that. think about it. It's like, just, it doesn't even know yeah, how to but breathe. It's like. also, <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's also not incredible when you think about it, right? Because it's, it's a necessity to survive, right? Um, <laughs> and so, to me, this is really important to know that there are things that are in there that you didn't necessarily choose. So, basically, to protect itself as a species, trauma needs to be remembered, Right? And it doesn't, you know, there's no, there were no books, there was no written language, there was even no verbal language, you know, except for humans, they don't know the other, you know, animals have verbal language. Like dogs have sort of expressions, they say they can come you know, happy, sad, scared, or whatever, but they're not actually, this is because they're looking, you know, they're kind of mimes, as opposed to, you know, being able to say sad, or whatever. Uh, so, without the ability to pass down knowledge, you would be far, far, far more likely to commit the same thing over and over again, right? Mm. And then run into trouble. Um, and so our biology is programmed to be able to pass knowledge on. And so anything bad that happens, it's kind of remembering. And then it's trying to pass it down to avoid that bad thing happening again. So automaticity in this respect, like for instance, post-traumatic stress disorder. Someone will hear like something go off or whatever, like a, a crack, and then they might be all of a sudden taken back to if they were in Afghanistan or something where there was you know, gun shooting and they're in full freak out mode, you know, <laughs> because they've been programmed that everything's about to go kick off. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like, oh my God. Yeah. Okay, so I can have trauma from my parents that resonates in me that I don't know, or something can have happened when I was young, as an example, and one coping mechanism is just to block it out. So you mightn't remember it, but your body does, and your body will then fire off automatic responses to help protect you, you know, that you have no awareness of. Mm, mm. Well, like, so this might be things like vertigo or like, yes. you know, the, the, the ruffling of the trees or in the bushes nearby. Um, you know, you think back on the, the, um, the plains of the savannah, if uh, they were ruffling the leaves and somebody didn't suddenly jump into, you know, fight or flight, um, then they would be quickly eaten by the tiger, even if it was one, one in a hundred times that would happen. So that's got... A re it got really got me thinking around, you know. So how much of this is is me deciding what it is that I want to, you know, include as part of my identity, and how much of it has, you know, come out of the box, so to speak, <laughs> when I was born, and um, you know, had it pre-wired into me. Like you know, when you buy a MacBook mm. Pro, for instance, like you open up the box, and it's got all of this wonderful uh, thing preloaded onto the system, and. Um, some of them you can delete with great difficulty, but some of them are just like hard coded into um, into the source code, and there's nothing you really you can do to change it. So I don't know, Duncan, if if we um, know enough about it, but like, can we change our automaticity, or is this something that we just yeah. need to be aware of in order to be able to um, like master, so to speak? Yeah, you can. I think uh, so. Um, just to give you another example, really quickly, cats. Like you know, there'll be a cat that has literally been born inside and it's never gone outside, right? And then it sees a mouse inside and it immediately goes to a nice docile house pet to kill, crush, destroy, right? It never went to kill, crush, destroy school, but it knows what to do. Like, so that is built into its biology, right? Okay, so what you can have is post-traumatic growth or post-traumatic stress. Now, it's default that you get post-traumatic stress, but if you do a bunch of work, and this, and Martin Seligman's one of the main sort of leaders of this, you can actually change things. So does it make you bitter or better? And this is also what cognitive behavioral therapy is. So there's a stimulus and your automatic or sub wired in subconscious response from automaticity is to respond this way, right? And you can rewire it to respond a different way. So some things I suppose like, I don't know. So like I live on the 20th floor apartment. Um, and when I first moved in here, I got vertigo all the time. And I thought I was going to die. And I was scared I was going to sleepwalk out the balcony. Off. I just I said this, like, you know, things. And now I don't get vertigo at all. Like, it's gone away. Right? And that's a pretty deeply embedded one. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But most people, when they, if they, if they live in an apartment, most people, you know, live in whatever, I don't know, a townhouse or something. Mm. They don't. So the, the point is that even deeply embedded stuff like vertigo, you can. But then there's stuff that happened to you. Uh, so almost always bad things will happen to you in your life. And you can either have post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic growth. Um, and if you have post-traumatic stress, if that similar event happens again, you freak out, right? <laughs> um, instead of learn something. And so it's core to understanding what it is to try to take a learning to be able to not freak out, I suppose. Mm. So this is one of my favorite areas of exploration that um, 
Jordan Peterson talks about when he reads Ordinary Men. Uh, and he talks about in the book that, you know, what happened in during the Holocaust were not that there was just this special uh, exclusive uh, breed of individuals belonging to one part of history that were particularly evil. It was very much ordinary men who had dormant programming in their mind or their subconscious that suddenly came online. And so he talks about this idea that we're all walking around with these programmings in us that we're not even aware of. And so like, I think, you know, let's just use um, uh, uh, Vertigo as an example of that. Like for me who live very comfortably on the ground floor, I could live my entire life without having any awareness that I have a Vertigo programming in me. And it's only when I go over to Duncan's sweet bachelor pad do I suddenly have this awareness like, holy moly, I'm really scared of heights. I never knew this before. Um, And so what else is there inside of me that I've never had triggered? And that can be really fascinating. Totally. Um, So this is like, I think, again, if you want to look at it from a different lens, um, let's just take reading, right? So if humans aren't around other humans speaking, they don't learn to speak. There's those documentaries on wild children that are, you know, not raised by humans. Um, and when you're starting to read, you literally have to recognize individual letters, right? You have to sound it out, you know, and it's like it's all your mental effort just to do that. So normally they say you've got four to seven working slots of memory. That's your conscious mind. And that's limited, right? Uh, and then your subconscious is unlimited, but you don't need to devote any time to it. And then you slowly get to actually be able to look at words you know, and you can make the word out immediately. You don't have to go T H E the, you know, and then you get to the point where you're just mowing through sentences like as fast as you can. And you're not just conceiving the words, you're actually joining on other ideas that reading comprehension is not just understanding what's in front of you, but it's joining onto other things, June. And so effectively you're going up levels of automaticity. What is a letter? What is a word? How do the words go together? How do you have sentences? Okay. How do I join other ideas on? And so, this is like seismic leveling up. So to me, you can program yourself, um, but you're probably never gonna be aware of all of the stuff that's going on in your subconscious. Even programs you've done to yourself, but also programs you didn't do to yourself. And so to me, one of the things I suppose is to try to become aware of as much of your programming as possible, because then you can either counter for it or actually undo the programming and you stop acting, I don't know, where you think you have 100% agency, but you've got 10%. Mm, mm. So I think like a quick caveat here. So when Duncan and I are talking about agency and like, you know, topics of free will, we don't prescribe to the school of people like um, Sam Harris, who don't think you have any agency, which would, I would say, probably renders this entire area of exploration moot. Because if you think there's no free will, then where does automaticity start and, you know, personal choice begin? Uh, end, sorry. Um, so for me, it's really just about, well... If you don't bring awareness to it, then this is going to run itself on autopilot. And so whenever you're confronted by the the same trigger in whatever environment, then you will have the same response. And it's what I find, uh, I think, really interesting is anytime I have that same default response, if if someone says to me, Mm -hmm. why did you do that? Or why did you think that? My first response was like, oh, because, like, you know, <laughs> obvious, it's obvious why. And then they said, well, no, it's not obvious to me. Can you explain it? And I'm like, um, oh, um, hold on. Let me <laughs> think for a moment because I actually don't really understand why. And so it's starting on that process of suddenly bringing awareness. It's kind of like, you know, pulling the, um, the, the, the Wizard of Oz from behind the curtain, so to speak. And it's just really starting to understand that. Um, you know, that dormant programming that's within inside of us. Mm. Yeah, so um, I hope you've all, whatever, learned to ride a bike or, um, you know, gone from not being able to read to read or driven a car. You know, at first you don't know where's this you know, accelerator, where's the brake? How do I turn on the indicators or whatever, right? Mm. And then you get in and you don't even need to think. Um, and so that's your subconscious mind working and that's automaticity. Um, now, this is what I, where I have a big think that Sam Harris's argument about free will falls down. He, he says one of the parts of it that you can't necessarily control your next thought and therefore you don't have free will. If you control your next thought, and I'm like, well, you can control some thoughts, but you can't control all of them. So there's your conscious mind, which you have strong say over, and your subconscious mind, which you have some say over, sometimes 0%, sometimes probably high. 
And so there's all this stuff that's in there that's like default, like a tree grows towards the light and the you know and the water or whatever, right? And so some stuff that's built in there like that, you know, for us. And so to me, yeah, once you're kind of aware, like, you know, you can sort of hear like your, your mind's kind of like rattling around, like, you know, I call it the monkey mind, just talking. That's kind of your subconscious kicking off little things and stuff that's sort of being thrown up a bit all over the place, if that makes sense. Mm. And so it's like, ah, okay. And then sometimes it'll say something from yesterday, like that happened. Or sometimes it'll think about the future. Or sometimes it'll just think something totally random. Um, but this is like a sort of second order outcome of your subconscious mind with, you know, thousands or, you know, hundreds of thousands of programs that are just kind of firing off with random stimuli constantly. Mm. Mm. So this is what, like, I mean, you know, Duncan and James attempting to simplify the inner, inner workings of the subconscious mind within a single hour conversation is, you know, yeah. laughable so easy. to so speak. But um, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's interesting to still draw a distinction between behaviors that we um, have internalized through like social cultural indoctrination, um, you know, mm -hmm. our upbringing, uh, certain environmental factors that were not from the direct cause of it being wired in our brain pre-birth, but then there are these more automaticity type uh, programming and whether there's a difference to the subconscious between the two. So, well, let me get, let me give you an example, right? So we say that, um, you know, we spend enough time uh, pursuing a particular craft like chess, if you get to a point where now it's actually embedded in your subconscious, so this is something Dan Kahneman talks about in Thinking Fast and Slow, mm. is that you can suddenly start seeing moves in your subconscious and you aren't consciously yeah. aware of it now. So this is something that has been uh, almost cultivated for you to start operating at the subconscious level versus something that was embedded yeah. in you from birth. And I'm just wondering yes. if there's a difference between the two and whether you can actually change one or the other, irrespective of whether it was a biological programming or a cultural or an environmental one. Yeah, so um, brain plasticity, you know, what, when neurons that will fire together, wire together. Um, I think, you know, uh, sort of chess is a really nice example. Um, effectively, the, you know, the difference between masters and novices is the amount of subconscious automaticity or programs that you've been able to commit to be able to run in your subconscious. Yep. Um, and chess is one where it's seeing patterns, right? So the more games you've played and the more sort of you've looked at them, the more you sort of understand. And so your mind subconsciously can kind of come up with the different ideas and things as so you can see patterns, right? <laughs> um, and so that's a really good example of you programming stuff into you. Um, so people can with you know therapy and other stuff, and this is one of the bases for cognitive behavioral therapy, is literally to understand when this stimulus happens, what is your automatic response? And that has been programmed into you through post-traumatic stress or whatever, right? Now, how do we rewire that to be not that, to be something to be productive rather than I don't know, counterproductive? Um, I'm sure there's some stuff that you can't change and I'm sure that it, it gets harder and harder. Uh, you know, some things, you know, certain areas. But again, like, the one I'm loving is like vertigo. I got like full on freak show vertigo when I was first in my apartment mm. and just like, oh God, this is not safe. This is really bad idea. And now like nothing, you know, and that's, that's a pretty deep one, you know? <laughs> um, so yes, I think you can. And this is, I suppose, you know, what I say, a habit is something that doesn't require any effort to do. Mm. So, so, sorry, go on. Yeah. Oh, oh. I was easy to like, go to the gym quickly yeah. in the morning used to be effort out of control. Yeah. But now it's default and it's hard to, to not go to the gym than it is to go to the gym. Well, I, that, I think that's a, um, a, an excellent um, example because that brings me to something that I'm like trying to formulate in, inside my head at the moment, which is this idea of um, you can have, you know, emotional intelligence, but then there's emotional fitness. And so what I'm saying is... Um, to bring awareness to maybe a programming or a subconscious bias is one thing, but then to be able to act on that in the moment that it would be normally triggered, I feel like it's something else entirely. Uh, and so just to give you an example, like, you know, when, you, when you've got an ego to contend with, <laughs> it can take over very rapidly. So for me, when I learned that if someone was trying to make me angry, um, if I allowed them, if I, if I got angry, then they would actually be 
um, satisfied that I got angry because then they would feel like they would they could exert power over me by playing with my emotion. Even if I knew that, I would still get angry. And that was because I feel like for me, and this is the, the wording I used, even though I was in like, quote unquote, intelligent enough to know what was going on, I was quote unquote, not fit enough to be able to bring my conscious awareness in the moment to what was happening. And it's only like you would say, Duncan, like going to a gym by exercising the mind time after time after time that this would happen, would it actually be able to um, start to take hold, if that makes sense? Mm. It's, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but let's take another lens at this. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we have to almost always mention that. <laughs> uh, one of the levels is like love and belonging, right? And so there's the secure and avoidant attachment styles that people have in relationships. And a lot of psychologists or psychotherapists would say, that this stems from how you were as a child. So for instance, if you didn't feel loved and, and sort of, you know, a safe and supported place at your home, and that can be because you've got a distant parent or because there is, you know, actually, like, you know, sort of domestic abuse or something. Um, so then you often don't have a secure attachment style. You get an avoidant attachment style, which mm. means that you worry and you push mm. people away or whatever. And that echoes through your life. And it's fine. And normally people with avoidant attachment styles have more people with avoidant attachment styles. And people with secure have secure, right? Yeah. And so you weren't even really aware. So what young children want, you know, is to be held into cuddles. And, you know, if something falls, they fall over and hurt their knee or whatever, they're told it's okay, etc. right? And so this is like subconscious. So you have unconscious desires, unconscious beliefs, unconscious memories, and unconscious fears, right? Um, some of them, you know where it came from. Yeah, that was this incident. But others, you don't. Like you literally, like most people don't have any memories before the age of three, right? Yeah. And you can do a lot of programming in those first three years <laughs> and you don't remember any of it, right? Like, because you're not there. Um, another really good one is this whole marshmallow test. Um, and they said that if you wait for five, you get one now, you wait for five minutes, you get two. And what it turned out was that people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, the kids took the one now and the ones from higher didn't. They said through life, the ones who did, didn't uh, waited, did better, right? And that was because those kids had been promised so many things over their life that would happen, right? That didn't eventuate. Yes, we're going to get a nicer house or whatever. We're going to go on a holiday. And they were like, bird in the hand is worth 10 times two birds in the bush. Do you know? Whereas the other kids had been told, we were going to do this and it eventuated, right? Mm. And so what happens here is this, this sort of like habituated sort of automaticity or subconscious, like don't trust, don't invest, you know? Don't put stuff for the future. Just take it now, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that will be echoing through your life yeah. the whole time. Yeah. Just like the sort of secure attachment and the avoidant attachment one. Yeah. So this was like probably one of the most pivotal moments of my life when um, I was expecting um, my first child. And uh, sure enough, I wanted to actually figure out what the hell it was I was going to do with this new life form that was going to be bestowed upon my responsibility. Uh, and I came across um, a, neuro, a neonatalist and neuroscientist called Dr. Howard Chilton. And he just explained it to me best when he laid it out in what I would consider clear terms that um, the, when, the, when the baby is born, the neocortex or the prefrontal cortex is not at all developed. And you can go through the entire evolutionary explanation of why human babies are born um, like premature. And, but what we're getting at here is that our brain does a whole bunch of development, like in terms of its neoplasticity uh, and even its like physiological construct outside of the womb. And so when the baby has been born into the world between the ages of one and three, the, the brain is still physically forming. And so this kind of like goes to your point. Uh, and like before this, I had no awareness. I was like, um, there, there were pockets of uh, society that would say like, well, doesn't matter what happens in the first year of the child's life, it's not going to remember it anyway. And if you hmm. if you stop there, you think, well, that kind of makes sense, but I don't remember anything before I was three. But it's to your point, it's like all of these environmental factors are actually being like very heavily coded into the brain because if I can remember any of it to do it justice, when the brain when the child is born, the brain is basically figuring out um, is this world safe? How can I navigate through the world? And so your, your marshmallow test is really um, potent because mm. a child born from a low socioeconomic background, generally... Well, that was... Yeah. Um, 
has learned that the world is not as safe, is not as reliant. And so they have scarcity mindset from an early on because it, they're taught yeah. as soon as there's food, get it. Otherwise, you don't know when the next one's going to come. Uh, as opposed yeah. to when you have an abundance mindset because you've always got food in the house. You've always got this idea that if I put my food down on the table and go away, it'll be there when I come back. Mm. Yeah, so, so these things matter, right? And it's like, damn it. Like I, you, you have all these unconscious beliefs, unconscious memories, right? Mm. So whether it's scarcity mindset versus abundant mindset from gems or whether it's secure attachment versus avoidant attachment. And you'll be like, whatever, 25, trying to have a romantic relationship and the stuff that happened when you were two years old that you're not aware of, that's you know, making you perhaps you know, much more of that you know, avoidant attachment style. So effectively, trauma is going to happen. So bad things are going to happen to almost everybody at some point, right? Mm. Um, you can choose to have the automatic thing happen, which is post-traumatic stress, right? And your body, so there's a wonderful book called The Mind Keeps Score. Um, I'll find the author, I've forgotten. Um, and in it, it's basically saying that everything that ever happens, your mind remembers, right? <laughs> now, most of it, not conscious memory, most of it, subconscious memory. And the things that happened that were bad, it remembers especially because that was its survival strategy, right? And it's like, when this happens, get freaked out. So post-traumatic stress is like, okay, if you have this thing again, immediately stress out big time, right? <laughs> and then get into fight, flight or freeze mode. Mm. Um, mm. If you do the work, so that's the default. You can turn it from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth. And there's a lot of research around this, Martin Seligman, um, et cetera. Uh, and so what that means is that you kind of, I suppose, and I've tried to do this, go through everything in your life that you can recall that was bad, seriously. And then try to figure out what the learning from it was, right? Because if I find if you can have a learning from it, it can help you make you better, not bitter, right? And then if this stimulus happens, what would you do again? And I'm not talking about like, oh, yeah, that time, like I didn't kick the goal in footy. I mean, if you're a full-time AFL player, okay, sure, you know, but like sort of bigger things. And so this is kind of like doing the work to go through your life and systematically take all trauma and move it from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth. Mm. And then you're not got this automaticity that is wired into you that kicks around and is disrupting you and, and screwing you effectively. So I, I believe, is it the body keeps the score by... Bessel van der Kolk? No, the brain or the mind keeps score. It's called Mind, Brain and Body and Transformation of Trauma. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Okay, that one. So <laughs> body keeps score, mind, brain. Yeah, Bessel van der Kolk. It's like being a New York Times bestseller list for like yeah. Yeah, 10 a, years or something. Yeah, number one bestseller in psychiatry. I was going to say Bessel van der Kolk. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, Pretty good name. But... No, completely, completely resonate with this idea that, um, you know, the difference between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic uh, growth is the meaning you associate with it. And like, I think for clarity, I feel like it's really, I, I don't know, I haven't actually studied any of this from a childhood or an underage perspective, but generally I think of this when your agency is at its peak from the moment you're, let's just say, 18 onwards. So if there's this idea of like, how do we train this in um, children and to have this mindset early on, that would be really interesting. Um, but for me, like the, uh, another really good book is um, The Obstacle is the Way. Uh, and this is by Ryan Holiday. It's really um, like, it, it, it grounds itself in stoic thinking. But the, the concept is, is more or less the same. And that is, um, you know, we have this idea of growth mindset and that we are the, uh, you know, as human beings, we're these, the creatures in perpetual development and improvement and growing ourselves. And we do that um, through the challenges that present themselves. And it's kind of like, oh, Ray Dalio, you know, pain, e oh, no, what is it? Growth equals pain plus reflection. And it's that reflection piece. Pain that, plus reflection equals progress. Yeah. And so it's that reflection piece that we can transform whatever, you know, traumatic experience we had, which by itself is without any value. It's not evil or good or bad or, um, you know, divine or anything. It's the meaning we associate with it and how we can then, like you say, learn from it so that we can either become stronger or more aware or more adaptable next time. Yeah, so there's definitely, you can get automaticity from 
bad things, but you can also build automaticity for good stuff. Um, so I think it's, 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 it makes sense. Like, and you see all the studies of other animals, but if trauma happened to us and we didn't remember it, we're going to get screwed, Jane. So, yeah. so your body is programmed to remember it, right? And its default programming is if this happens, get freaked out, you know, <laughs> run, 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 whatever else it is, right? Not, oh yeah, cool, kill the cucumber, I'm all good, you know? <laughs> um, but the other side is that you can do upgrades, right? So trauma is shown to be able to pass through generations um, in animals. And I think in humans, you can see the downside stuff through like vertigo, et cetera. But uh, is upside like horny? I think so, right? And so to me, the horniest humans won. Um, and so because of that, we're all, we're all extraordinarily horny, you know. Um, but you can't necessarily like, I don't know, if, if you're whatever, parents who are great chess players, using the example of chess, do you come out good at chess? It doesn't really show that. But I think just like with chess, you know, a, a master can take the same amount of time to think. Like, let's just do whatever, one minute for each move and make great moves. And a novice takes one minute and makes idiotic moves, right? But that's the same thing with work. Let's just say that you're an accountant, right? And you start off day one post, you know, sort of university and you don't know what you're doing and it takes ages. And then 10 years later, you can do all of this stuff and you're, and you're kind of thinking it like an abstracted level way higher. It's kind of like, so, so that the chess players, they're thinking four moves ahead and they're mm. thinking about the other person's move and whatever else, right? And you're just thinking, what moves does the horse able to do again? Is it able to do this? And they're not thinking that, right? Mm. <laughs> they're literally thinking way out. And that's the same thing that can happen at work. Um, and so you, it takes years and years to build. Um, so to me, to become good at something, you need to spend lots of time doing it. Mm. Um, and then you can put automaticity or subconscious programming, which makes you wildly better than you would otherwise be. Mm. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Carl. Who's that again? Jung. <laughs> until you make the unconscious conscious it will direct your life and you will call it fate i actually i've I've said this before on on the podcast but i think it just it rings so true and it's this idea of that uh uh you know there there are people out there like tony robbins who will you know champion the idea that if you're if, if things are not going well in life or for yourself personally you know rather than just like look around and point at all the reasons why you know, life's not fair, I haven't been given my chance, blah, 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 blah. Like, mm. look at those who have managed to achieve success for themselves and think about what it is that they do that is getting them the results and how that's different to the way you operate in the world. Um, and and because it's the idea stemmed from the fact that we have the decision-making um, uh, apparatus that we are not necessarily, you know, even remotely aware of how they function and yet we go through life and whether we feel like we're you know successful in navigating that or not if we don't know what our um, decision making framework is then there's no way we're going to be able to control it and so we will likely just chalk it up to well i've just it's just bad luck or i've just you know like fate has like frowned upon me so to speak but Mm -hmm. but i really do um i like if you if you take that all the way out to the extreme it's what you were just saying there, Duncan, which is we, we become what we practice. I, I can't remember what the, what the traditional saying is, but it's like, you know, Duncan doesn't become a really strong visionary at his company because he's naturally, um, or he has this natural inclination towards it. He becomes really strong because he's, he practices it every day, every week. And so it becomes this familiar muscle, this part of, you know, an extension of your brain by way of this repeated application. Yeah, so maybe if you look at it this way, like when you're first learning how to play chess, you're just trying to learn the rules, mm. right? And so then the rules become automatic, right? So you, you build the automaticity and they go into your subconscious. You don't have to think about them. Just like you don't have to think, you know, which pedal is excited, which pedal is a break. And then you start to think about, okay, well, different strategies. Okay, how many steps are sort of thinking ahead, right? And so, again, how much have you done of this, which is programming that has gone from your conscious to your subconscious? And so if you're looking to be able to, I don't know, express things in a way that is hopefully inspiring, you've got to do the work to level up. But leveling up means that you don't need to have conscious effort to have that occur. It's in your subconscious. Does that make sense? Mm. So you, you literally can do this everywhere. And so it's like, oh, uh, okay. 
well, I'm trying to undo some of the things, you know, the illiterate will be those who not, cannot learn, unlearn or relearn or whatever. Um, and it's like, ah, 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 ah. One, these, there are these things kicking around subconsciously. Damn it, didn't know that. Well, what, what are they? So subconscious desires, subconscious beliefs, subconscious memories, subconscious fears. Um, okay, so where is this? And then what am I trying to change the programming of? And it's like, so I'm not just trying to add new programs. There's also a bunch of them. Like, let's just say 50%, which are literally <laughs> counterproductive, right? And, and, and until you start to do the work to like get them out, they're just going to be going around there wrecking stuff and you'll call it fate. Mm. Yeah. So like uh, Tim Urban, I think, explained this really well in one of his um, blog posts about how to pick a career, which I don't think it does anywhere near enough justice to the, the message that he um, espouses, which is, in order for you to know what you want, you need to do a better job of understanding what makes you, you. And it comes back to this con concept of how much dormant or subconscious programming um, do you have running the show at the moment? And when you start to kind of like pull at the, um, at the thread, you can, you can break down this, these elements that are, you know, whether they're personal, social, moral practical or based on your lifestyle like where did these insert themselves into my my either my being or my belief set without even my awareness and then like, it's it's really you know it's, it's quite um you know, it's, it's quite confronting when you think like holy like these beliefs are not mine they're actually my parents or they're actually um you know my my teachers from from grade school or they're you know any number of different elements that because I didn't have enough critical faculty at the time to evaluate as to whether I think this is something that I should um, take on probably because I didn't know who the fuck I was when I was like 10 years old I, I also I push out you don't know who you are this is, this is the, the western idea yeah you ne you're not trying to find out who you are you are constantly building yourself mm. so I, I just think you're very careful because you're pushing the standard western narrative about figuring out who you are so no no you're building yourself into whoever you want to be. Right, and so if maybe to use that um, that lens is which is the Eastern narrative. If you're if you're building yourself, like, do you just take every brick and add it to the cathedral, or do you choose which bricks do you want to add consciously or not? Right, and so and you remove half the bricks because they're just a dump that you didn't put there and are blocking you know, construction. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's an interesting mental model, right? So it's like if we're if we're building ourselves consistently, then you know maybe by the time where um, no, 37, like the spring chickens we are, yeah. the bricks that we're putting on at the top, every single one is placed there, uh, whether meticulously or not, it at least has a level of thinking applied to it as to whether we want that brick to go onto the wall. But there might be a whole bunch of bricks all the way down at the foundational layer that we can't even see or we haven't even addressed yet that are still like determining um, you know, the angle or the, the direction that the, the things at the top are being placed upon. Yeah. Um, so to put another way of, on lens on this is like Danny Kahneman's thinking fast, thinking slow. Thinking fast is your subconscious uh, programs that are automatically baked in there. You don't need to think. Thinking slow is figuring out what to do and do this. And so if you go back in time, humans did the same thing every day, hunting and gathering. There were no fridges. There were no supermarkets. If you didn't hunt today, then you're going to starve, you know? And what we were doing is learning how to need to act really quickly. So just like if you're playing footy or whatever, you don't get the balls like, let me sit down, let's have a discussion, let's draw it out, let's put some few options in here about what to do. You've got to think really, really, really quickly, right? Mm. Um, and so what happens for us to be able to survive is that we have this subconscious default mode network, they call it, um, where everything happens default mode, right? Instantly. You don't, you don't have to actually make a conscious decision. It's just bang, you know, this happens. Um, and this is what some sports people call being in the zone or in flow, you know, shit, shit, take me high. Um, and so this was built because the type of environment that we used to live in was this hunter gatherer stuff. And you're the same day, day in, day out, hunting, gathering, defending the tribe, right? That's it. And so you needed to learn the default things to do, how to swing a sword, whatever to do. You see this happening, you know, how to catch the animal, you know, so on and so forth. So that was why it's there. And then if something bad happened, you, you jump, you know, and you get going or whatever. Our lives in a modern, you know, first world, you know, liberal democracy have almost nothing to do with hunter gathering. Like I have never hunted 
my own food <laughs> uh, ever, you know? Um, and, and, and so, so effectively, most of my day is not the same day on repeat. It's not Groundhog Day. Now, there are some bits I kind of know sleepy, but if, you know, most of it is actually different. Now, I'm sure, you know, my job is not the same as everyone else's job. Um, and so what this means is that the default mode network is, is like basically not use, useful. <laughs> it's a pain in the ass, which is coming around wrecking things. Whereas if you're an AFL footy player, you need to build your default mode network to be actually able to know what to do instantly. You'd have to think. Mm. And mm. so it's really, really interesting. Um, your default mode is what your gut is. And it's like, no, it's like your average of your past experiences, unless you've gone and done the work to change them mm. from trauma to growth, you know? Yeah. And so it's really, really dangerous to go with your gut unless you've got a very, very, you know, strong, that, that circumstances like happened a yeah. hundred times before. Yeah. yeah. So um, talking about, thinking fast and slow so what um system one and system two uh, like one-to-one overlap with what you were saying duncan with regards to your conscious and your subconscious basically uh and so he talks about system one being it's designed to jump to conclusions from little evidence and it's not designed to know the size of its jumps so like this this, this part of my favorite one of my favorite quotes considering how little we know the confidence we have in our beliefs is preposterous and it is also essential so it, it, that's one of those things that like every time I think about it, I'd get a little bit more like, oh my God, <laughs> that, that, that is like quite profound. So if we think about this, like we, we move through the world with system one, more or less, you know, in that immediate um, control. So thinking fast or subconscious. Yes. Is that right? Co- correct. Correct. Cool. So like, you know, if you're responding to things, you're doing it in a very instinctive and, um, you know, like quickly reactive kind of way. Um, but your, your brain without really like reaching into the conscious level will go through a decision heuristic and make a, make a call and it will do it Mm -hmm. with the, the conviction that that is the right course of action without any kind of like, you know, sense checking. And for us to, like be able to move from action to action with that level of, um, you know, uh, confidence in ourselves, like it seems absurd, but if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to move through the world. Like you said, Duncan, life would be like a football game where every single time you had to kick the ball, you would say like, let's just stop. Let's just sit down everybody and think about which would be the best, you know, um, you know, action to take. If we couldn't make, if we couldn't learn from past experiences and snap decide, we died. Yeah. Right? Like, so but when every day was like literally fighting for animals, defending the tribe, whatever, and you had to, the faster you could react, the better, right? But there was huge commonality. Like each day didn't have much variation. It was like a, a version of the past stuff. This was optimal. Yeah. Yeah. So your system one of or subconscious he fast was suited to survival in a hunter gatherer times, yeah. right? And not today, you know. And so there's trauma that happens when you're, you're, you know, in hunt together. That's probably going to happen again and again. Get your body ready to freak out, you know, and, and go these things. Whereas here, in, in you know, I don't know, 21st century first world country, it's you know not necessarily the best thing for you. So this is where he talks about this idea of subjective confidence, um, and it's not Kahneman. Yeah, yeah. So he, he said subjective confidence, not reasoned on evaluation of the probability that is correct. It's just a feeling which um, which reflects the coherence of the information and the cognitive ease of processing it, right? So you think about a ruffling bush, right? Super quick, super obvious. And if we take admission from this seriously, um, then we're thinking about similar elements where there might be a super quick and super easy situation that is comprehensible, but that doesn't mean that we can actually have the right information at that point in time. Um, and so I can't remember what he was talking about directly, but he's, he said like moments where if somebody is speaking in such a way that triggers that fight or flight, and so your body instinctively knows that it needs to go into that mode. But that might not actually be the, the, the suitable response. But it's just mm-hmm. it's, it's just really, really uh, incredible thing to think, like, if we're just letting system one always make the decision for us without any kind of critical faculty, then how are we going to be able to, you know, override 
these programs that have been built inside. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it from a different way, like um, if you read one book, it probably doesn't change much. If mm. you read a book every week for your life, it'll change everything, right? Um, so to me, I think we're sort of looking at this from the, the downside perspective, but there is also the upside. Effectively, a, a human mind's cultivation is the number of programs that you've added to it that run subconsciously or the amount of automaticity that you have built. And one way that you can do this is by reading books, right? You're mm. layering in schema into your neural net. And then when you discuss another idea, there's all these patterns and you can join it onto more things. So effectively, upgrading your mind is adding automaticity or subconscious programs that can run or removing counterproductive subconscious programs that can run. And so it's, it's like... Ah, okay, well, which ones do I want to add? Okay, well, I want to add, I want to read about this and then I want to make stuff here. Okay, and, and what do I want to remove? Well, good question. <sighs> Are there any things that you're responding in a bad way? Okay, go through. When this stimulus happened, what happened here? What's the reason that I'm doing that? Why am I doing that? Okay, now what would I like to do instead? How do I go through and do this? Okay, now I'm going to write this down. And so if I want to change behavior, um, I will write out normally three to five models. Like I'll say, okay, I three variables in something. So for instance, I think that... Uh, discussing this way in a meeting is better than this way. Um, so these are the three to five ways to do this. And then after each meeting, I go through them and I speak to someone who was in the meeting with me and I go, what do you think about this? And it moves from subconscious to conscious. Mm. Um, you're, and then you can start to change it. So there's this, and we'll move to it this. Mm. Unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, unconscious competence. So that's going from a counterproductive automaticity or subconscious program, unconscious incompetence, to the conscious where you need to think slow, conscious incompetence, okay, I'm doing this wrong, but I can see it now, whereas before I didn't even know that I was doing it. Yeah. Okay, now I'm doing it right, but I have to think about it to do it right. Okay, now it's my new default, my new automaticity. So you, there's a lot of evidence around this as well, uh, like in academic research that you can sort of do this. So yeah, the first step is awareness. <laughs> and then once you're aware of it once, you've got to set up a system that reminds you about it. Yeah. Because if you don't remember, you should think about it once, once and then you never think about it again. It's probably not going to change. You're just going to stay where you were. Yeah. No, 100%. That, that, that setting up of the system is absolutely key. And I think that was my, um, my fail point on so many occasions from... Uh, you know, numerous conversations that you and I have had, Duncan, to, you know, feedback I've been getting uh, in my relationships or at my workplace. When something suddenly shifts from unconscious incompetence to the conscious incompetence, like, you know, there's a moment of, um, there's, there's an epiphany there. And I'm like, oh, I finally understand why this is, you know, why this, um, you know, has emerge in such a way or why I'm not showing up in, in this particular manner. And mm. the the uh, the arrogance, I guess, I had of thinking, now that I know it, I'm not going to do it again, um, is a recipe for, for failure because just because I realize that I'm now consciously incompetent doesn't mean that that's going to change my subconscious programming, which is still running on the previous setting. And like you said, by putting in a system that's going to continually remind me that I have to bring my awareness back to this new found piece of knowledge, it's only by doing that over a repeated series of events over time can I shift conscious uh, incompetence to conscious competence and then unconscious competence. Yeah, it's like super important. So I've got this giant spreadsheet. <laughs> um, and there are, I think there are 60 different things in there, but the, at the top is the most, so the ones I'm concentrating on the most. And I just look at it three or four times a day and you get built into the habit. It's like, okay, at the end of each, because sometimes it's, it's about thought patterns. So I remember I say to people like, problem solving is not going with the first idea you come up with. At a bare minimum, you've got to come up with two ideas and you've got to decide which one you think is better, right? But normally if it's a large, so I don't know, if you've done it a hundred times before, it's a small, you don't need to come up with something. If it's a medium, you've got to come up with a few options. If it's large, We've got to come up with five options. We've got to build a model to rate them, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, so you set up this, okay, well, I need to think that way. When I'm doing a proposal, what size is it? Small, medium, large, what do I do differently? Um, or it's like, okay, I want to change the way that I'm, you know, uh, being part of a meeting. Okay, what do I want to change? And then you, you write these things down and then 
you go and you systematically check after every single meeting and you rate yourself first as that and then you get someone who you trust to help you, just give you their opinion because you literally like what's really annoying i find is that the person who's hardest to have perspective on is yourself so the person that's easiest to affect hopefully is you because you've got the controls right but the person who's hardest to see how to improve is you yeah which is really annoying because you're so close to it although i think uh, to me with systems you're easy to change but most people don't know how to change literally they don't they don't do any work they know something's wrong and they do nothing they just continue on with the same old crap. It's not good. <laughs> well, I, I would posit it similar to things like, I would say a fair portion of society knows how to look after their body, but they don't. Um, a fair portion of society knows... They know how to eat well, yeah. Yeah, um, like it's, it would seem like if you go through the education system, you would know that like, you know, reading books at a bare minimum is a way to acquire new knowledge, but people seem to lose that interest. That very shortly after they leave school. So it's not so much knowing how to change yourself um, or like what can what constitutes a healthy mindset or a healthy body. It's knowing how to apply that and the way in which it's going to lend itself to giving consistent um, you know, feedback. And I think this idea that you, you posit around getting feedback from others gives you an immediate kind of like response to being able to change your internal programming. And I think it's that kind of mindset that makes it a lot more tangible to be able to hold on to, um, you know, this idea because it's, it's like looking at your own body and because you live in it 24 seven, you don't really know the difference between a 36 year old body and a 37 year old body. Uh, and it's the same with, you know, changing your mindset. If you're trying to constantly up-level yourself, you might not know the difference from one day to the other. But if you get the same feedback from someone else one week to or one year ago to today, they'll help make that a lot more, um, you know, like real and tangible in terms of the perspective that they provide. Yeah. Um, I suppose like your, your mind, like they say, they say that nobody understands the human mind. It's the most complicated thing in the non-universe. Uh, yeah, cool. I definitely don't understand all of it, but I don't understand none of it, right? And I think over time, it's like, okay, well, there is this automaticity that you can build. Just like, you know, you can learn to whatever, ride a bike, and then you come back, you haven't ridden a bike for two years, and you get on, you have to start from scratch again. You've built it, and it's in there. Hmm. Um, and so you can effectively build habits, right? And a habit is automaticity <laughs> of some kind. Um, and it's like, oh my God. I can do this to make it easier to eat well, to exercise, to you know spend time reading, um, to think better, to converse better. And so they say, first you make your habits, then your habits make you. Um, what are you trying to unlearn and what new stuff are you trying to learn? And if you don't have goals on this, then you're probably uh, not gonna be improving. Like, you know, hope is not a strategy. And if you have a goal, and you have no process, then what are you gonna do? Expect it to happen? <laughs> um, so as an example, like I think outcome of your input is the quality of your input times how good you are to work with in a meeting, right? And I think that my quality of input is very good, but that my how good I am to work with is average. Um, and that I want to be the best to work with because I think it allows for better creativity, more enjoyability for me and others, et cetera, right? Um, and so, I've been sort of embarking on, well, what, how, how do you think about becoming the best person to work with? Um, and then it's like, oh my God, this is a new problem area. And then you just start writing about it, right? And then it's like, okay, well, here's some key things that I wanna do. And then I write out the five things that I think are really important to build. And then at the end of every meeting, I check through the five things and then I check with somebody else afterwards and have a debrief or post-game analysis. And you start slowly to become more and more aware of it. And then you start to real time be seeing things. And then you start to think before you speak rather than it's come out. Oh my God, how did I, I, I've, I could see it as soon as I've said it, you know, well, that's great. Uh, but, you know, first you don't even know it's bad. Then you can see it as soon as you've said it. Then you can actually think before you say it. And you could see, oh, that's how I used to have said this. Now mm. I'm going to say it this way. Mm. It's just sweet. Mm. Yeah. What would Ted Lasso do, eh, Duncan? Yes, <laughs> that's the next podcast. What would Ted Lasso do? <laughs> um, and I think um, you know, the, the space between what is it? Um, uh, the trigger and the reaction is your ability to formulate, um, you know, a new wiring. And so, any any time that you um, 
you know, are confronted with whether it's the same particular environmental um, influence or event or something that triggers you at a particular moment, if you can allow the, the mind to pause itself so that you don't, that's it, it's not reacting, it's responding. Instead of instinctively reacting, whether that, that you know, the, the thinking fast mind, you allow yourself yeah. to actually collect your thoughts, even if it's just five seconds longer, and choose your response. That's how you can start to help myelinate this new way of, um, you know, embedding some form of automaticity. Did you say myelinate? What does myelinate mean? Myelinating is basically, um, I can't remember the the technical term, but it's like the nerves in the brain wrapping itself around and firing a new connection. So like the brain is not like just like bits, Mm. like hardwired and it's just stored there. It's all about the, the wiring and the connections between each of the nerves. And so when you myelinate a new process or a new way of thinking or a new thought pattern, um, you're actually changing the connections in the brain. Um, and this is... Forming new synapses. Uh, look, I am not going to <laughs> tout myself. Don't, don't use words. I <laughs> don't know what they mean. <laughs> if you can't explain uh, it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I don't understand yeah, it well enough. Not- but I do know that like this idea is like it, the, the more you apply this into how you choose your response over time, the, like, the myelination is the way of explaining that this will form itself into a new habit. This will form itself into a new um, like mindset or view of the world. Um, but okay, so oh, like try, time. trying to like, oh, sorry, go on. yeah, like, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, like grab all of these Lego pieces and pull it together into some form of like coherent structure. Um, but like, so this has been, you know, an ongoing exploration of like understanding and appreciating this dichotomy between the conscious and the subconscious mind. Um, so whether or not it's from the moment we're born or even during those very early formative years, there are programmings in our mind that we may or may not be um, at all aware of. And so this is like things I've learned about this in things like Ordinary Men and what Jordan Peterson talks about, dormant programming. These are, you know, evident in um, in in nature with spiders knowing how to weave web. They don't go to web weaving school, as Duncan would say. Um, and um, uh, studies around like, you know, testing mice and, um, you know, giving them electric shock with raspberries and that can pass itself on in generations. So we can see this happening and playing itself out. Um, and so bringing yourself from unconscious incompetence when it comes to automaticity to conscious <laughs> uh, uh, incompetence around, okay, so now I understand there are parts of me that have been driven from this unconscious place in my mind. How can mm. I change that? And so I think um, you know, bringing awareness to it is one thing, building systems around changing your behavior, changing your thought pattern and actually exploring the origin of these belief sets or these um, values or these behaviors as well. Um, it, it's almost a lifelong journey. And I don't think that you can just suddenly say, oh, I've addressed that and now that's you know going to play itself out going forward. I think this is a continually um, you know, developing you know, new way of thinking. It's kind of like that idea of growth mindset. So for me, it's really, um, it's a really interesting journey to try and figure out how much of my agency I can use to control my behavior and not allow whether dormant programming or unconscious programming um, to, to, you know, to be in the driving seat all the time. Yeah, instead of meditation, they say, you are not your thoughts, you are the observer of your thoughts. Mm. And I think part of that is like, well, some of your thoughts are literally your subconscious. So if you're meditating, you're concentrating your breath, so using your conscious mind to try to focus on your breath. That's sort of, I suppose, the most sort of well-known type of meditation is breath meditation. And then you'll be doing that and then your subconscious and all of a sudden you won't be doing that. Do you know what I mean? So you're, you're basically in this battle with your conscious and subconscious mind constantly. And you kind of start to see your subconscious mind, I suppose, more clearly through meditation is one way I've been able to see it. Um, and what you can kind of slowly understand is where are these things coming from? You know, so again, it's called your subconscious mind. You're not conscious of it, right? <laughs> but that doesn't mean you always have to be not conscious of it. If you spend the time to go and understand what your subconscious was doing after the fact, you can start to get better at it. So let's say you are—you um, don't learn from your experiences, you learn from reflecting on your experiences. John D. Dewey, I think it was, said that. Uh, and to me, it's like, okay, well, replay what happened. And then there was the conscious stuff that you were thinking, and then there's the unconscious bits that are occurring. And you can kind of see the unconscious bits often after the fact, 
but at the time their unconscious buddy that's what the hell the thing is right <laughs> you know uh, and then that looking for them after the fact slowly can start to make them go from unconscious at the time but you can find them as conscious after the fact if you spend the time to slowly becoming conscious at the time and that's when you can start to get in front of it and to change it instead of having the, this the program fire this you can get the fire another way it's like okay 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 so one lens on life it's about changing programs in your you know subconscious that you think are counterproductive and it's about adding new productive ones and that's you know then do things like that for which i don't know help you improve the common good or you know whatever else it is it's like ah okay cool i need a system like what am i trying to change and how am i trying to change it and if you've got those things you're good <laughs> couldn't have said it better myself mm. cool all right well i think we're done james Thanks very much, dude. Cheers, dude. Or until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>